Man, thank you, as always, to all of y'all who have served this morning. Um, it's a great blessing. Whether you have taught, I'm on. Talk louder. Uh, whistle check. But really, thank you all if you have, I'll talk loud, I promise. If you all have taught classes, played music, um, led in our confession and prayers, whatever it is that you have done, thank you all to all who have served. Um, at some point, if the mic doesn't work, I promise I will talk loud and John will tell me to. Um, this morning, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 19, if you want to turn there and follow along. So, I told y'all before, whenever I was in uh, elementary school, I went to this small private school, and the school was kind of made up, like you could say, of two groups. So we had like this core group, right? Like it's kids that come back year after year and like this is just their place. And then you have this other group and they're almost like, like interchangeable pieces, right? Like kids come for a year or two and then they leave and then somebody else comes and kind of takes their place, it seems. Well, part of that core group was this girl named Crystal. And Crystal and I had this very complex um, on again, off again dating relationship, okay? Whatever dating means in fourth grade when you like live 10 miles apart and have no phones and you're not allowed to talk on the phone. It was serious, all right? Just, it was serious. But Crystal and I, like, we would date for a period of time and then something would happen and we would split. But inevitably, it seems like we always ended up getting back together. And maybe you have had a dating relationship like that, maybe even one that went past fourth grade. Or maybe you've had a friendship like that where like maybe over time you kind of grow apart or like you fight and kind of you have a falling out. But inevitably it seems like you always end up back in that relationship. Whenever I read about uh, Saul and David in the Bible, they seem to have a bit of an on-again, off-again relationship. Like, they're never best friends, right, like Jonathan and David would be. But it seems like there are times where, like, they're kind of good with each other. And then there's times, like we find today, where Saul wants nothing more than to see David killed. In the last couple chapters, we have seen David have victory over Goliath. We've seen the Israelite army defeat the Philistines. We've seen them come home from the battle and the women come out and sing praises, right? Like Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. We see Saul become angry and jealous. And while we see David gaining like the, the envy of the king, we see him gaining something else. We see him gaining a friend, a friend who it says his, their souls were knit together. We see him gaining a friend in Jonathan, and we see him gaining the love of a woman in his bride, Michael. And that is the, kind of the background as we come into 1 Samuel 19 today. And as we spend a few minutes looking at this text, here's the three things I'd like us to look at. Let's start by looking at the power of the truth, the value of a community, and the sovereignty of the Almighty. Now this last point, I've reworked a couple times. So if you get to the end, you're like, you should have named it something different. You might be right. All right. Make a note of it. Jake was wrong. And keep it to yourself. All right. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 19. Will you follow along with me as I read? It says there, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan Saul's son delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul my father seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning. 
Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, then I'll tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, excuse me, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore that as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. And Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you don't escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. And Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go, and why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and, Saul, or he and Samuel went and lived at Naal. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naal in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great wall that is in Sechem. And he said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, and he prophesied as he went until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Church, this is the word of God from the mouth of God. And he has given it to us because he loves us. And these words are true. Can you all finish this saying? You will know the truth and the truth will. Okay, it's a little lackluster, but you got the words right. So. What's interesting I found about this phrase is that people both inside and outside the church, a lot of them know this phrase. I was curious how many people would know it. So on the clock at work, I walked around and asked people. And it was interesting, about half the people knew. But whenever I asked, who said it first? Where did it come from? We were a little less sure. Because one person said, fairly certain it's an ancient philosopher. Another was convinced it was a U.S. president. And my favorite answer I received was, ooh, an important historical figure of some kind. They're right in that 
because it was Jesus that said these words as he is speaking to this group of believing Jews in John chapter 8. There's something about the truth. There's power in the truth. And in our text, we see that power put on display as Jonathan goes and speaks with Saul. So if we're going to kind of like have it in our mind, like what exactly is going on, we have to think about what happened in the last chapter. Saul has put David in charge of at least some of his troops, right? And David, it says, every time he goes out to battle, has victory over the Philistines. It's like David is in the service of Saul, going out, having victory. And it seems like Saul is getting to sit at home, hang out, take all the glory for it, and do none of the work. This is the guy, David, that is having victories for Saul. This is the guy that Saul has given his daughter to in marriage. And yet, despite all of that, this chapter opens by telling us very point blank, Saul wants David dead. In the last chapter, he wanted the same thing, but he was a little more secretive about it, right? Like, in his, he had came up with this plan where he didn't have to tell anybody. He's like, I'll just keep sending David out to battle. Surely at some point, somebody will kill him, and then I don't look like the bad guy. But now, he has done away with that. He calls in his people. He's like, all right, get rid of him somehow. And when this plan is rolled out, Jonathan, David's best friend, and also brother-in-law, does what a friend should do. If you're ever put in this position, this is what you should do. You go and tell your friend, somebody's going to kill you. You should probably get out of here. But that's not all he does. Because we see that he then goes and meets with his father in hopes that speaking the truth to him will have a positive effect. And if we look at verses 4 and 5, we see that Jonathan actually like frames up his argument we could almost see it like in three categories. Like he makes a moral, a rational, and a theological argument. He makes a moral argument as he says, David hasn't sinned against you. Why would you sin against him? He makes a rational argument as he says, man, his deeds have benefited you. His deeds continue to benefit you. Even whenever he laid his life on the line to go and fight the giant that was coming out against us, you rejoiced at his victory. And the theological argument is seen as he says, God is at work through David. My guess would be that Jonathan probably didn't sit down and like script out what he was going to say. He probably didn't even think about his argument being in these categories. He probably just stood back, looked at the situation and knew this is a conversation that has to be had. And these are the facts. Even though Jonathan may not have thought through these specific categories, I'm going to argue this morning that we should. Because in your life and in my life, we are at times faced with dilemmas. We are at times faced with situations where, man, there are conversations that we just need to go and have with people. Sometimes it's because um, there is maybe a fight that we've had or like an unresolved tension out there. Maybe it's not even between us, but we just know like, man, it's for your good that I go and talk to you about this thing. Do you prepare for those conversations? Do you think that these categories might be helpful to us? Like how might it benefit us before we have that conversation, instead of just going and shooting from the hip, to think through like, 
what is, what is rational here? What is morally right? And what has God revealed that might apply to this situation? As Jonathan makes these arguments, he goes and presents them to his father. And he speaks the truth. And there is power in it. Saul sees the merit of Jonathan's argument. And in turn, he swears, David can come back and he won't be harmed. This is probably a conversation Jonathan didn't want to go have. But one that he knew was necessary. One that he knew, if I avoid it, things are only going to grow worse. Is there a conversation like that for you? Is there a situation that you need to go engage with someone about? One that may not be enjoyable, but one that is important? I encourage you to prepare for that by thinking through these categories of moral, rational, and even theological. So then pray for wisdom and strength, and then to bite the bullet and go have the conversation. Maybe you're like, I am, I am good on this one. Nothing is out there. File it away somewhere. You know what conversation I haven't had in a while? Why I think I'm an all-millennial? But you know what? It's filed away somewhere. And at some point, it is going to be helpful. And I would encourage you, this is the same way. So after Jonathan speaks with Saul, he tells David, you can come back. David returns home to his wife and even returns into the service of Saul. The truth had set David free from the oppression of the king. But his freedom wouldn't last. And this allowed David to see yet again the value that is in a community. Do you ever go back and re-watch movies that you watched when you were a kid? I guess one of the greatest parts about having kids is like you can go watch cartoons and not feel weird about it. Like, do you ever go watch movies you watched as a kid though and you find yourself really gravitating towards different things, like loving different things about it that you didn't used to? So a while back, I made Elliot watch Toy Story because I love her and I think it's important. You think what you want. And it was weird because even after the movie's over, what I found myself thinking about was not like great one-liners from the movie that we all know, but instead I found myself thinking about the toys in Andy's room and the way that they interacted with one another. And yes, I realize this makes me sound like a nerdy kid, but I don't care. As we think about the relationships that they have, about the community, we could say, in between these toys, we see that they looked out for each other. They helped each other. They even enjoyed each other. And as they were plugged into the community as a whole, the community better thrived because of each of them. And they as individuals thrived better as they were part of this community. Now look, I understand it's a movie. But the reason that these truths are conveyed there is because that story is written by someone who is created in the image of God, that God has created as a relational being that inherently knows Community is important. We see it in this movie. We see it in our own lives. And we see it here in our text as we look at the life of David. Right? Like we've already said, Jonathan goes and talks to Saul on David's behalf. And as we move through the text, we see that he's not the only one. That his wife, Michael, comes to his aid as well. And David didn't ask her. She comes to him and is like, look, bro, you got to go. She offers her help. 
And whenever Saul sends men to David's house to keep watch so that in the morning they might kill him as he comes out, what does she do? She makes it look like he's in bed. Says that he's sick. She buys him some time. With the help of his wife, David escapes and flees somewhere to the prophet Samuel. We remember Samuel, right? He's the last judge over Israel. He is the prophet. He is a priest. He is the one who has anointed Saul and David to be kings. And so David's like, where's a good, safe place to be? And so he goes to Samuel, and Samuel takes him to this village. Now, as we read about this village, like, it, here's what it probably is. Here's the place that they probably go. It seems like it's like a tent village, probably, like the place everybody wants to live. They go and live in this tent village of prophets. And this is the place that's supposed to help keep David safe. You know, if I was David, I don't know if I would have been wise enough to do what he did. If David would have been left all alone, he probably would have ran away. If I was in David's position, I think I might have been like, man, it's a wide world out there. I'm going to go explore parts of it and leave this business behind. But David wasn't alone because he not only had God's hand of protection on him, but he had the community around him that God had given him. This community was willing to help him. But do you know what it took on David's part? It took some humility because at times David would have to go and ask for someone to help him. And at times David would just have to receive the help that someone was trying to give to him. Is that an area in your life that is at times hard for you? Like, do you find it hard sometimes just to admit you need someone's help? Is it hard to admit you don't always have the answer? Is it hard for you to just ask for that help? Is it harder for you, because I think this one is for me, is it harder for you to accept the help when someone just steps in and offers it? We often act as if having to take help from someone is something to be ashamed of. But where does that idea come from? Because it's not, it's not the Bible. From the very beginning, we look to the garden. God creates Adam, and what does he say? Oh, this ain't good. I'm going to create a helper for you. Whenever God comes to Moses and is like, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. It's like, oh, uh-uh, I can't do that. It's like, okay. I'm going to send your brother with you to help you. Even Jesus, as he's going to Calvary, someone helps him physically carry the cross. The idea that we are self-sufficient, that we don't need a community, that we don't need anybody else, this is an idea that's not biblical. This is an idea that's prideful. Back in chapter 18, we talked about what does it take to be a friend? And part of that said, man, it's... It's going to take the realization that this is going to be hard. As we think about community, it's like, man, we're talking about compounding people on top of people and thus compounding how hard it is to be in a community. But we see that a community is worth it, right? Like all of the hard work, all of... Man, just all of the baggage that we're going to have to sort through is in the end worth it. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, 
and it's an analogy that many of us are familiar with. He talks about how we as a community of believers are a body. What if you're a body part? Think about, what if you're the thumb? Thumb's great, right? Do all sorts of things with the thumb. But not by itself. You can't pick your nose with your thumb, right? Like, what do you need to be a functioning part? The thumb needs fingers and a hand that's attached to an arm and a body. Like, we need each other. Do you ever find yourself avoiding community because it is hard? Because it takes up some of your time. Because you have to put effort into it. I remind you as often as I can, community, even Christian community, is going to be hard and we are going to let you down. I am not purposefully, but I promise I will let you down. And for that, I'm sorry in advance. But the benefits of a community will far outweigh the cost. This is true for us, and it was true of David. In this text alone, think about what he gains from the community. He gains peace from Jonathan's words, even if the peace only lasts for a time. He gains deliverance from the help of Michael. He gains encouragement and confidence from his time with Samuel. I mean, think about where Samuel takes him. He takes him to a community of prophets. Think about what it might be like to live with a bunch of prophets in that day, like what you would be hearing. Proclamations about who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he one day will do. David's time there, even though he was in hiding, would have been filled with hearing truths about God proclaimed. You think it would be encouraging to him as he is on the run for his life? You think hearing things like that now might be encouraging for you? Every Sunday in worship, our aim is that you would hear those things. With the scriptures we read, the songs we sing, the catechisms we recite, the words that are preached, the sacraments that we practice, our aim every week is so that you would hear God speaking to you through his word and that you would see him put on display and that you would be encouraged and emboldened by that as you go. But all of these things are meant to be done in a community and a community is formed as we are here spending the time together. Christian, do you ever let your pride hinder you from asking your community for help? Do you make community with believers a priority? And are you enjoying the gift of community that God has given us? That we get to be a part of a community not marked by, we like the same band, we cheer for the same team, we drive Teslas, but instead a community marked by, what did Christ say? our love for one another. As David was with Samuel in this community of prophets, he got to have an experience that was unique, but he also got to see something. He got to see the sovereignty of God put on display in a way that you and I likely never will. Whenever we say sovereignty, sovereignty is God having supreme rule over things. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're saying God is sovereign. God has control over everything. If we read this story, if you read the first like 20 verses, like nothing is that bizarre, right? Like nothing stands out that much other than that like Saul seems to be a little bit off kilter because he wants to kill this guy that does all these great things for him. But other than that, like it's just, just a story, right? The last four or five verses of this chapter, things kind of seem to get weird. Because whenever Saul learns that Samuel and David are in this encampment. 
he sends men. He's like, go kill him. And as they arrive, it says the Spirit of God comes on him and they prophesy. Saul gets worried. He's like, let's try again. Send some more. Same thing happens. Third time. Goes. Same thing happens. Can you imagine how angry he probably is when the third guy comes back? It's like, so, uh, it happened again. Like, you can almost feel how angry he would be, right? Like, like you can almost picture him, like, standing up and storming out of the room, saying something along the lines of, like, if you want a job done right. Right? Like, so he goes to look for him. And let's be real. Like, this is bold. Like, he is to the point now where he so desires David's head that he is like, I'll kill him myself. I don't even care if he's with Samuel. Like this is, Samuel's God's man. It's like, don't care. But what happens? The same thing happens to Saul that's happened to everybody else, only earlier. Because it's not when he arrives at this camp, but it's on his way. Saul begins to prophesy. And as he gets there, it gets worse. Because as he gets there, it says that he strips himself naked and falls and prophesies, not just for a time, but for the rest of the day and night. This last verse of this chapter, if we're reading it, there's probably part of us and that's like, Oh, I wish it didn't end on this weirdness, right? Like, I wish there was something after that. We might wonder, like, what am I supposed to take from that verse? What am I supposed to see here? I think there's a couple things. One, I think that we're supposed to see this as a warning. We might see this as the last great warning that Saul receives. Saul should have seen this action by the hand of God as instruction, as God saying, Saul, wise up. Saul, accept my instruction that I'm giving you. Saul is laid bare quite literally, in front of the people. And who does he always want the approval of? The people. I think that we can see Jonathan and Saul as foils of one another, right? Like we can compare and contrast them. Jonathan, we have seen as a man who has sought the approval of God. In the last chapter, it says he willingly removes his robe in order that he might give it to David. Jonathan in this chapter is the man who is speaking the truth of his own accord. And Saul, on the other hand, is the man who is not willingly submitting to the Spirit of God, but who is being overtaken by the Spirit of God. He is not willingly taking off his royal robe. Instead, he is being stripped of it. He is not willingly submitting to God. He is not willingly proclaiming the truth, but instead, God is forcefully making him proclaim, this is what is true. We see that his son Jonathan was humble, but that Saul is forcefully being humbled. Or at least should have been. Saul has been slowly seeing his kingdom be stripped away, and now his clothes and his dignity are being stripped as well. Now, does this not seem like a call for Saul? Accept instruction. Saul, repent. But will he? Will Saul repent? Will he humble himself? Will you accept the instruction God has given? What about you? In your life, will you accept the instruction of God? Will you humble yourself before him? Will you repent of the same sins that Saul needed to? 
like jealousy and pride and anger and self-serving tendencies? Will it take like it did with Saul, God stripping everything from you in order to submit to him? Or will you hear, will you hear the words that God says? He's literally telling us, repent and submit to me. Saul should have heard those words as Jonathan came to him, realized his fault, turned back to God. But instead we see this aggressive, angry king humbled and humiliated and his throne stripped. And we see not only God's warning, not only his calling to repentance, but in the final portion of this chapter we see God making something clear to him and clear to us. And that is his power is irresistible. The actions that Saul took that day would be ones that he would, have, <laughs> he would never have chosen, right? But the power of God is irresistible. And that power stands in direct contrast to the power of the enemy, which James tells us can be resisted. The will of God is sure. His sovereignty is total. And we as his people should find comfort in that. David got to witness firsthand the sovereign power of God and see his protection yet again. The protection that God provided for David should comfort us as we consider it's the same God protecting us. Sometimes he does it by using other people, like he did with Jonathan and Michael. But sometimes God bypasses people so that we never forget who it really is orchestrating that. And in places like Isaiah 55 and Romans 11, we are told that God's thoughts and his ways are higher and his wisdom is beyond our comprehension. And with that in mind, we need to think, you know, sometimes God's protection is going to come in ways that I may not like, I may not look for, and that I may not even realize. But because he is the sovereign God with all things at his disposal, he can work in my life however he wants. Our sovereign, faithful God is where Jonathan and David had fixed their eyes. As we come to this text, we should ask, is that, where I'm, is that where I will fix mine? This morning, we've talked about truth, community, and the sovereignty of God. And we have looked at David, who is a great warrior. But David in this text hasn't been protected by his sling. He hasn't been protected by sword or spear or soldiers, but by the truth, by community, and by God's sovereignty. But you know, as we look at the life of David, we see he wouldn't always rely on these things. Because at times he would lie. He would betray those in his community. And he would act as if his power were ultimate and that he could do whatever he decided was best. And in this way, friend, you are like him. And so am I. We sin and fall short in the same ways that David did. And this is why we have the same need as David. But as we look to Christ, we see that there is one who did what we could not do. There was one who was always truthful, who never betrayed, and who actually does hold the power of all things. And our only hope of being truly safe, secure, and protected in this life and in the one to come is to hide ourselves in him, to be wrapped in his righteousness. David knew that this was true for him, and it led him to write these words in Psalm 5. He said, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. David knew his only hope was in the Savior that God would one day send. And friend, our only hope is in that same Savior who he has sent.
And is Christ where you find your hope, protection, identity, and purpose? If not, he invites you to submit to him. Let him become these things for you. And if you are his, let me end with this encouragement. Live in light of the truth of what God has declared about you. And in turn, walk in newness of life that he has freed you to. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, um, man, we thank you that you have given us this story. Parts of it are hard. Parts of it, man, we may not know what to do with. But we thank you that we can see these beautiful truths in it. That the truth is powerful. That you have blessed us with Christian community. And that you, God, call us to repentance. And that you protect us, even in ways that we may be unaware of. Pray that you would teach us to value those truths. We ask that you would drive deep into us uh, a love for who Christ is and the way that he has fulfilled all of these things in ways that we never could. Pray that as we leave, we would leave seeing him as more beautiful. We ask all this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.